Hi guys, it's me, Jonathan. Bit of an irregular introduction to this episode that you're about to listen to. Why irregular? Well, I recorded a really fascinating conversation with Dr. Gordon Menzies on neoliberalism, which thankfully I do have and you're about to listen to, but for reasons completely unknown to me, mysterious, inexplicable, the about the first 10 minutes just magically disappeared. So I don't actually have the intro where we run through the introductions. He says it's the greatest honor of his life to be on the show or something like that. And then he, where he kicks off into the first part of his answer to the first question, which is, of course, what is the definition of neoliberalism? I had done a bit of foregrounding too, which I'll do here. He's now gone and I can't bring him back. And as it happens, this was a bit of a debacle trying to get this recording done. We had recorded 45 minutes of an episode when we were kicked out of the room mysteriously just for a second. Then it came back and we'd lost the recording. We had to reschedule. He was very gracious and kind to do the whole thing again. And now we do have the full conversation, but we had a couple of other technical difficulties, including losing the intro. And so I just wanted to do this introduction and flag that because otherwise it'll be a bit jarring if it just launches straight into the midst of a discussion. So I will do the introduction of Gordon Menzies, his bio, a little bit of the, the foregrounding, and I'll actually say something about the start of the answer he gave to the definition, and then I'll play the intro music and it will cut into the conversation where he's doing a second more refined explanation of what neoliberalism is from, I guess, a more technical economist perspective. So Gordon Menzies is an associate professor at the University of Technology in Sydney. He's an economist by trade. He's actually worked for the Reserve Bank of Australia in the 1980s, in the heyday of neoliberal economic reforms. Uh, he's spent time at Oxford working, I think, on the, um, the impact of the global financial crisis, and that comes up as a big topic of conversation. He's also the author of a book that was shortlisted for the 2021 Australian Christian Book of the Year Award called Western Fundamentalism, and that comes up in the back part of the conversation. The reason I did a bit of foregrounding about neoliberalism, there's, well, there's a number of reasons and I won't bore you all with them. It's a literature that I have dipped in and out of over the years. And I just want to mention that there's a couple of things I've noticed about the work on neoliberalism that are worth putting out at the outset. And that will actually be a nice entree into the discussion, which does have some complexities. The first thing you notice reading the literature on neoliberalism is that no one can agree on what it means. And virtually every scholar acknowledges the fact that it has a thousand and one different definitions. Now that makes the concept both intensely interesting because when there's disagreement about a concept, it's something worth talking about. It also though makes it incredibly difficult to get hold of. It's a bit like trying to capture water and you find yourself having to ask every time you encounter the term, what exactly does the person uttering it understand by it given its definitional pluralism? The other thing one notices, however, is that no one disagrees that it's a real thing. Not only is there agreement that it's a real thing, there's a consensus that it's an incredibly profound, important, pervasive, world historical shaping uh, force. The historian Perry Anderson has gone as far as describing neoliberalism as the most successful ideology in world history. 
And I think there's some truth to that. So on the one hand, difficult to define. On the other hand, profound, impactful, tangible, shaping our lives in all kinds of different ways. I think part of the complexity comes from, from the fact that you can tell different stories about the genealogy and historiography of neoliberalism. You can take it as a concept and then map out an intellectual history and scholars trace the idea all the way back to the 1930s. A lot of people probably don't realise how long ago it first emerged in a European context. And there are big names, of course, associated with the intellectual history of neoliberalism, your von Mises, your Hayek's, your Friedman's. Then you could tell an institutional history of institutions like the Mont Pelerin Society and the so-called Chicago School associated with the University of Chicago, institutions which propagated and disseminated the ideas of neoliberalism, which lobbied governments and which played some role in the economic reforms of the 1980s, which brings me to another way of telling this story, which is the actual history. And interestingly, scholars, some scholars at least, make a distinction between what they call actually existing neoliberalism and then the concept of neoliberalism with all of the debates around what the concept means, that points to the fact that you can actually chart a history of concrete economic reforms which do change the way economies are managed, run and organised. Of course, we immediately think of um, regimes like Margaret Thatcher's government in the United Kingdom in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan's administration in the 1980s and then closer to home for me and many of my listeners, Australia in the 1980s. And of course, the unique thing about Australia here is that it's the centre-left government, the Hawke-Keating government, that first brings in similar reforms that those big, bad right-wing uh, governments in the UK and the United States of America are bringing in. So that was the foreshadowing and preamble that I gave in order to set up the conversation. The one thing I'll say about Gordon's initial definition, which unfortunately we lost because he says something very intelligent and subtle. He noted that the sort of basic idea of neoliberalism is to extend markets as an organizing principle into more and more areas of uh, social and political life. And at the same time, it's about reducing the scope or activity of government intervention in markets. But the really interesting thing he noted was it's also an idea, a way of thinking, not just about economics, but a way, a metaphor, if you like, using markets as a way of thinking about many aspects of life that ostensibly have nothing to do with economics. And he goes into some of that. So that's enough for me. I'll shut up now. I'll leave you to the to the show. I want to really commend this conversation. I thought Gordon was outstanding, sober, very clear, uh, extremely illuminating, nonpartisan, just looking at this as objectively as he can. I'll roll the intro music and we'll launch straight into uh, Gordon talking about the definition of neoliberalism. So if I was to give an academic definition, I'd focus on um, free market liberalism 
and the particular variant of free market liberalism promoted by the Chicago School of Economics. So free market liberalism, what does that mean? Well, the free market bit's pretty obvious. It means that markets should operate with minimal intervention. And the liberalism bit says that um, even if markets didn't have great consequences, which actually they do, um, the fact that people are freely trading is a value in its own right, that people are making choices in markets. So not only are free markets um, good on a consequentialist ground that they lead to good outcomes, um, but the fact that people are freely trading is a good thing in and of itself. So that's free market liberalism, um, uh, which is sometimes called economic rationalism in Australia, which is a uh, put down term because anybody who doesn't agree with an economic rationalist is obviously irrational and an idiot. <laughs> um, but uh, the more descriptive term I like, uh, as I say, is free market liberalism. And then on top of free market liberalism, neoliberalism is in addition to that um, um, the, the idea that the Chicago School of Economics has, which is to take market thinking um, into all sorts of areas where it hasn't traditionally gone. So there are Chicago school economists who advocate for a market for adoptive babies. Um, Gary Becker, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, won the Nobel Prize for his work in describing families as a kind of small economic firm using market metaphors. So um, neoliberalism as an academic idea uh, it's not used that much in economics academia because it's seen to be a pejorative term. But um, I think um, the non-pejorative description of it would simply be free market liberalism as espoused by the Chicago School of Economics. Uh, one somewhat technical question I have. I noticed I came across one argument in the literature I was surveying that suggested that economists decades ago moved on from the term neoliberalism but since they moved on from it it's been adopted by the social sciences and it's really through the social sciences that it's just become a ubiquitous term and I do hear it all the time from non-economists just saying you yeah. know universities are run on neoliberal grounds and this that and the other I mean is that true? Uh, I can't comment on the other literatures but it's true that you re very rarely see it spoken or written in economics. Uh, and that's a shame, I think, because um, it is a real thing. Or, sorry, it is a real question, how far do you want to run society according to market principles and actual markets? And so I think it's good to have a word for it. It's good to have a word for one answer to that question, which is as far as possible, markets should control society and be um, the social mechanism for running society. So I think that's a real economic position or ideology, and so I think it deserves a name. Interesting. Just one other technical question. Uh, for the dummies at home listening and for the dummy talking to you right now, what is a simple definition of a market? Sure. Well, um, a market is a arena where buyers and sellers um, come together and swap um goods and services for a common price. So um, uh, markets would be um, 
they would range all the way from um, uh, a garage sale or a, 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 a covered market in a, in a town or something like that, all the way up to um, um, supermarkets or, uh, or, or chains of supermarkets. So they're just an arena where people buy and sell and the large numbers of buyers and sellers um, create certain, and the common price creates certain properties um, which are which are sort of useful. Um, yeah, that would be my definition okay. of the market. Thanks. Enlightening. Always love a simple definition. Let's dive into the 1980s because I think it, it's, although we've sort of started at the conceptual, it's best to actually get into the nuts and bolts and many listeners will, like, like I, or like me, will, will have lived through this period of economic transformation or if they haven't, they'll be well aware that they're li- living on the other side and in this neoliberal universe. So I want to get into some nuts and bolts of what the actual economic reforms were in the 1980s and their logic. But as a, an entree into that topic and question, could you paint a picture for us of the prevailing economic system, model, practices, theories, just prior to this 1980s era of reform? What is the economic system that changed? Um, Well, the scope of markets widened in the 1980s reforms. And so uh, prior to the 1980s, um, the labour markets, relationships between employers and employees, um, the currency market, the Australian dollar was um, fixed by government decree rather than um, by forces of supply and demand. Um, uh, the, the markets for goods bought and sold overseas were um, interfered with with tariffs. Australia had um, tariffs on a much wider range of goods, much higher than it does now. Um, so all of these areas um, were, uh, were not... Um, the, the, the economy was not run according to market principles in a lot of these areas. And so the 1980s uh, saw uh, each of those areas um, reformed and uh, put more subject to market pressures. So the one that I was most closely involved with at the RBA was the exchange rate. I started work at the RBA after the dollar had floated, but there was still a lot of work on understanding how um, the currency moved once it floated, what determined it, how it affected the economy, and I did a lot of work on that. So that's the one that I'm probably most familiar with. Um, but in, in a whole range of areas, things became more subject to market forces. Um, interestingly, there was a parallel movement which doesn't exactly fit into my definition of neoliberalism, but there are connections, which is there was a, um, a mantra of smaller government um, and, and this is generally a feature of right-wing politics. It's not always the practice of right-wing politics. Governments do not sometimes get dramatically smaller, or they certainly go nothing near to what they were in the early 20th century um, under conservative governments. But there's this idea that governments are to be treated with more suspicion and they should be smaller and kept out of many things. So that that was part of the political movement in neoliberalism as well. So you saw privatisation and various things like that as well. Just for the sake of conceptual clarity, uh, I want to put to you my understanding of 
the A and the B in terms if we want to draw a line from we went from an A to a B, the sort of pre-1980s economy and the post-1980s. I mean, it seems in terms of categories, both are capitalistic, both involve markets that have some degree of freedom. What has changed is simply the scope of government involvement in what is to some extent a free capitalistic market. That is, it it sounds like we didn't shift entirely from one economic system to another. It, It really is the best way to think of it as a reform of the existing system or was it something more transformative than that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a, it was a reform of the existing system. Um, not necessarily less government involvement because some um, some labour market reforms uh, were more about how employers and employees related to each other. Um, but, but yes, it, in some of the things that I said, so if, if government involvement means having taxes on things like tariffs, then the removal of tariffs, you could say, is less government involvement in trade. Um, and um, and certainly in the exchange rate, yeah, the, it went from the government basically setting um, the exchange rate to letting it be subject to forces of supply and demand. But yes, in answer to your basic question, no, it wasn't a, a new system. It was a reform of an existing system. And so the big changes in the 1980s, you've got the floating of the the dollar, so it becomes mm. subject to market forces. You've got the removal of a lot of tariffs, so I guess there's a mm. market liberalisation of trade. I'm not sure if that's the right mm. terminology. You've got some tweaks mm. in the labour market, and I'm not sure if it's in the 1980s specifically or maybe because the John Howard era in the 1990s, if we stay in the Australian context, that was also part two of the neoliberal mm. economic reforms. In some, In a strange way, this is a kind of political side point John Howard, perhaps because he's on the centre-right, seems to be most closely associated with the neoliberal reform period, even though it seems like some of the biggest stuff was done, done by Hawke and Keating. But setting that aside, so there are... There are well, there's an interesting little, interesting little story about that, yeah. which is that um, um, Keating was able to do a lot of the things that Howard would have loved to do. Um, and I can't remember the exact... Uh, um, source of this story or quote, but I remember I remember hearing of an exchange between them in their offices about, um, you know, you, you did everything I wanted to do. Um, so yes, uh, certainly, and it's an interesting political lesson, isn't it? Because if a party does what the opposite party would love to do, then the voters have got nowhere to run to. So um, uh, I think that puts them in a position of enormous that gave the Hawke-Keating government enormous free hand because none of the things they were doing could be objected to by the more um, uh, economically rationalist people in the Liberal Party. So this is one way through legislative gridlock is if you simply adopt the ideology of your opposition, on principle (laughs) they can't oppose you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, that's right. But, of course, some people would be very reluctant to do that. I mean, I think it's I think it's fascinating what Hawke and Keating did. They took the Thatcher-Reagan um, image of neoliberalism and they sought to grow the economy and make it more efficient for a social purpose so that, so that it would be able to, you know, support welfare and so on. So they were coming from the left in their desire. 
But what's interesting to me is that I think neoliberalism and thinking in society, of society in terms of market metaphors, just changes society and changes people. And so I think it actually, um, uh, for want of a better word, trained people have more right-wing minds. <laughs> um, so, so in one sense, their reforms were a failure because they, um, they achieved their economic ends. But in doing so, um, they bequeathed a certain mindset to people, which makes concerns about social justice a bit more difficult to come by. That is a really, really fascinating judgment, Gordon, because in a way you could construe this as follows, that the ALP came in, and I'm sure from their perspective, wanted to utilise the kind of economic insights of the Chicago school but civilise them and do it yeah. in a, an ethically responsible way. But what they what they may have ended up doing is actually brought the Chicago school thinking and and unleashed it from the Pandora's box to the to the point where looking back now you can see that it it looks more like what the chicago school would have wanted to have seen in australia beginning with the alp and what's come yeah. to me. the just just to get back to where, where i was going because you did you did start to stray into the territory I, I was heading actually and that was to really ask okay we can we can it's pretty straightforward to document what the economic neoliberal economic reforms of the 1980s were and there are par parallels here of course in other parts of the the world and this is not just an anglo-saxon story because i notice in the historiography of neoliberalism people nominate chile as the first place where the chicago school's ideas were first implemented we might return to that in terms of the evaluating the success or otherwise of neoliberal economic reforms but, but I wondered if you could just run us through the logic and purpose at work here. So in multiple, this is a fascinating historical political story. So in multiple parts of the world at the same time, you've got this same ethos and impulse and attempt to reform the economy. What were the problems that these reforms were trying to address or what were the goods that they were trying to bring about? So um, the economic conception of the good is largely in terms of um, physical goods and services. So that's what they were trying to, to bring about. Although, as I said earlier, there is a, also a, a, a hint of valuing freedom for its own sake. Um, you know, the fact that people can buy and sell and do their commercial transactions without interference of government, even if it didn't have... Um, increase the amount of goods and services available um, is seen to be of value in its own right. The freedom of freedom of exchange is seen to be of value in its own right. So that's the goods that they were heading for. The um, what what the the telos of the whole thing was the teleology of the whole thing was. So so the nineteen um, so the post war period in the Western world um, up until the early nineteen seventies was a period of um, of consensus in economics about how the economy should be run. There was um, quite a uh, degree of comfort with government intervention um, and government involvement in the economy and a fairly um, um, 
a pragmatic, almost left-wing consensus about that. Um, when the 1970s hit, a lot of difficulties emerged in the Western economies, largely through the oil price shocks in 1974 and 1979, which were a, um, a political well, the first one was a political protest against the United States support for Israel. And um, the turbulence of those shocks was, was the economic turbulence was um, set the stage for a rethink uh, in the academy. And also there was, there were, there were just a lot of difficulties, high unemployment, inflation and so on during the 1970s. So people were um, open for new ideas and they were open to kind of radical um, reforms were used radical in the original sense of going all the way down to the roots, um, trying to rethink things completely. And out of that, um, in that environment, the people of the Mount Pelerin Society and their associated um, um, co-thinkers uh, really came into their own and had their day in the sun. From your perspective, looking back, and you, you were working in the belly of the beast, so to speak, during this period, you were at one of the new institutions, one of the new market institutions at the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is, amongst other things, you didn't mention setting interest rates. I assume interest mm. rates were controlled by the government at some, in some way yeah. prior to that. Uh, so it's kind of, although there's an institution setting it, it's been taken out of the political arena, I guess, much to the chagrin of yes. governments right up until t t today. Yes, Reserve Bank independence became a much more focused thing over the time I was there. Yeah. So what I want to invite you to do is give us an evaluation of whether these reforms were successful from your perspective and you're free to define success however, however you want here. Um, well, I myself think that... Um, yeah, I think that the um, the standout reform for me, um, perhaps because I worked on it for so long, is the floating of the dollar. So um, having a floating exchange rate is really great for Australia because whenever um, the Australian economy booms, interest rates tend to go up and that makes it attractive for people to put money in Australian banks or buy Australian um, securities or whatever. And so that increases the demand for our currency, the Australian dollar. People want to sell their own currency, buy the Australian dollar and put money somewhere where they can earn the high interest rates. And so that tends to push up the Australian dollar. Now, what that does is that automatically slows down um, the economy. It slows it down because when the exchange rate goes up in value, it means that our exports become more expensive Imports are cheaper for us. And so there will be less export production happening in Australia and less import competing production happening in Australia because Australian firms are facing stiffer competition from imports. And that slows down the economy. And going the opposite way, um, if the economy is in a deep recession, interest rates will go down the exchange rate will tend to depreciate because people will want to sell their Australian dollars and buy somewhere else where interest rates are higher. And as the currency depreciates, that stimulates the economy. It makes our exports more competitive. It chokes off imports because they become more expensive. 
And so you get this automatic effect that when the economy is going strong, it gets slowed down. When the economy is in a recession, it gets supported through this mechanism of the exchange rate. And that mechanism wouldn't work as well if the exchange rate was fixed by the government. So, um, so what that does is it, it reduces the fluctuations in production in Australia that, compared to what they would otherwise be, and that stabilises employment. So, um, so I, I think the floating of the dollar has been a fantastic thing for Australia. Now, there's an extra twist, which is what the mechanism I just outlined then is true for any country and why any country should have a floating exchange rate. But in Australia's case, there's an extra mechanism. We are very lucky that we are what's called a commodity currency, which means that whenever commodity prices fall, there's a tendency for the Australian dollar to fall. By the way, all these relationships I'm talking about between interest rates and exchange rates and commodity prices, they're all pretty imperfect and sometimes the exchange rate just bucks the trend and does what it wants to. But there is a tendency for these things to happen. So, and it's a great advantage to us that um, the dollar moves with commodity prices. So if we take cast them on back to 2008, um, the global financial crisis hit Commodity prices collapse, and because of that, because Australia is one of those currencies that's linked to world commodity prices, not all currencies are like that. Because Australia is like that, our currency depreciated, and that that boost that I talked about before of becoming more competitive applied during the GFC. And so we were the only OECD country not to go into a recession during the GFC. And if you look at a graph of the currency, it's just a remarkable. It drops about 40% for a year and then goes back up to what it was before. Um, so it's just a perfect um, um, a perfect shield for the economy from what was going on in the rest of the world. So, so I would say, um, without a doubt, it's, and it's, as I say, it's one I was most closely involved in. I think floating the dollar has been fantastic for the Australian economy. That's really fascinating, Gordon, because it, it, I'm just thinking about this conceptually. It, it shows that in this one instance, at, at least, and I, and I think there's probably more dispute about some of the others. I could be wrong about that. It, it shows that by taking the government out of that particular market, yeah. the market can operate independently in such a way that's quite advantageous. Yeah, that's right. All things considered. Yeah, so the general argument for markets goes a little bit like this, that um, if you have to choose between central planning and markets, central planning is requires so much information um, that it's hard to get things right. So, for example, if you're in a country and there was a, um, uh, say you're in Australia and there's a massive storm which wipes out the banana crop. Now, the way that markets often work in a situation like that is that the price of bananas would go up. And what that would do is it would discourage consumers from buying bananas, they'd buy something else, and it would encourage producers to produce bananas. So the, that's just obvious. We live with it every day um, that we respond to market forces. But think about the significance of that. The significance of that is the government doesn't have to tell consumers to consume less bananas and doesn't have to command farmers to grow more bananas. If we lived in a command economy, 
where the decisions about what you consume and what you produce are just simply given by the government, then the government would have to make those decisions and it would have to um, enforce them, whereas there's no enforcement here. People are just responding to prices. And, um, and the only decision that people have to make uh, is not a very complicated one. Will I buy something that's gone up in price or buy something else on the consumer side? And the production side, the price of a good's gone up, do I want to produce it? So markets require very little information to work very well. Now, the counter to that or the pushback is that sometimes markets fail and then there really isn't anybody else that you can think of except the government to try and fix that. So, for example, if a good is produced using a very polluting technology, then um, the market price, if it doesn't have to pay for its pollution, which often they don't, the market price for it may be quite low. And so people will be swapping these goods, producers will be producing them, consumers will be buying them, they'll be swapping these goods in markets and they won't um, be forced to, to pay the cost of the side effect of the pollution. That's called an externality. And it's generally accepted that in the absence of externalities, markets are a terrific organising device. Um, but in the case of externalities, that it's, it's harder. And then there's various policy discussions about what you do in that situation. But the most obvious thing to do is to tax either the firm or the consumer the cost of the pollution, and then that will get factored into the price. Yeah. Fascinating. Be, before we move on, you mentioned the GFC there, and I do want to fast forward to that because that seems to be another huge issue worth exploring. But could I just ask you about two of the more controversial reforms? Not only perhaps controversial at the time, but if, if you, there's still a lot of debate about it today, and that's trade liberalisation, or let's just call it free trade, and privatisation. Mm. And I'm aware, particularly here, you have advocates and you have have critics, so I'm not sure which one you want to take take uh, first, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in a kind of evaluative judgment. You know, is privatisation a good thing? Is it a good thing depending on how it's done? What is good about it or or bad? And and the same with the the free trade. Is free trade trade a net good or is it the evil that a lot of people, even on the right now, seem to think it is? Yeah, it's hard to disagree with um, with a certain amount of freedom in trade because all that it's doing is applying the principle that we need for survival onto the international state. So, uh, as far as our own survival goes. Um, if I had to produce everything that I consume, I'd be very poor and probably dead. <laughs> um, and most people are the same. So the way that we actually survive in this world is we produce an excess of something, we sell it on to a market in a job usually and get paid for it, and then we use that to buy other things. So we are essentially um, trading with other people all the time, mediated through markets. And... Um, and it's what's true of individuals is also true of cities. If you put a, a brick wall around Sydney and demanded that um, everything that's consumed in Sydney had to be produced in Sydney again, people would be very poor or they'd be dead. Um, and so, um, so 
it's within a country, people normally have no difficulty in accepting the idea of free trade. They would think it absurd to um, to have a barrier between New South Wales and Victoria stopping the free flow of goods and services. So free trade um, makes us all better off. It allows people. It allows things to be done by the people or in the places that are best suited to doing them. Um, so it's hard to disagree with as a principle generally. Now, when it comes to countries, we've become aware recently uh, with COVID that there are moments in history when self-sufficiency would be really nice. It would be really nice if, if we had had um, the ability to make vaccines ourselves. Um, and, and also in warfare, in situations of warfare, countries might be isolated. And again, that didn't seem to be strongly on our radar screens, but of course, recent events have reminded us that that's, that's a real possibility. So when it comes to nations, there is more controversy about the notion of free trade, but on a purely economic criteria, if you could be, as it were, assured of the goodwill of nations, um, then, um, and it's not, the goodwill of nations that's very costly because it usually benefits both parties to have free trade. But if you could be, um, if you could sort of rely on an internationally stable system, well, then yes, I'd be an advocate for free trade. Um, and the other one you mentioned is privatisation. Now, privatisation I have more mixed feelings about because historically there have been reasons why governments have stayed in certain areas and out of certain areas. And so the more extensive privatisation is, the more you're starting to get into activities that I really wonder whether it is appropriate and proper for governments to be involved. So, for example, I myself don't have any, um, the slightest um, moral qualm about the privatisation or the corporatisation of Qantas. I don't particularly see why a government needs to have a stake in a national airline. Now, maybe there's things I don't know which have maybe changed my mind, and that's okay. But um, I don't sort of have a strong feeling about that. But I'm much more um, reserved about um, the extent of privatisation in education or health uh, because it seems to me that these are areas which are more difficult to run on a profit motive because uh, that's what free market liberalism does. It just assumes that... Um, People are motivated by, uh, well, firms anyway, are motivated by the profit motive. And for things like airlines, I don't see what's particularly wrong with that, whereas when it comes to um, people's healthcare or education, I have my concerns. And part of the concerns, going back to an earlier part of the discussion, is about externalities. So, um, um, you know, it may be that teachers are not paid very much and that... Um, we don't value education very highly in a market sense, but education is very important. You know, when you educate a preschooler well, you're setting them up for the rest of their lives. You're setting up society with a, with a citizen for the rest of their lives. So there are enormous externalities in education and health is the same. So it's case by case for me, but I'm not certainly not comfortable with the idea of just taking markets as far as you possibly can. And there are, there are areas I know, and this came up in a previous conversation we had, where it's, it's difficult to see how a market could even operate. And if it did, 
the drawbacks would be so obvious and large and and the one you put to me was defense so yes that's right what would the privatization of the defense force or the marketization of the defense force look like and and you know who who would pay for it and of course there's all kinds of absurd problems so if obviously you'd have to have some defense contractor that hires and trains the soldiers and and arms them but then what what if one of their clients is your invader and they have a serious conflict of interest or what if they go out of business three weeks into a war and file for bankruptcy (laughs) and what about the national security implications if they're screwing the government or underpaying the soldiers and it can affect morale and so you can you can i just thought that was a brilliant example which is why i wanted to mention it of there are certain things that just seems inconceivable that anyone but a government could actually do it yeah there are things called public goods which is not to be confused it's a technical term a term of art it's not to be confused with um ones provided by the government although public goods often are best provided by governments there are things in economics called public goods and and public goods are difficult to arrange uh market provision for precisely because once they're produced you can't stop people enjoying the benefits of them so um an ordinary good like a chair if you make a chair if you make a chair and one consumer buys it, the other consumer can't share in the benefits of it. Well, I suppose they can even go into a coffee and have a seat, but but they can't directly share in the benefits of that chair. Um, you can exclude effectively the consumption. The, the person who buys it, the, the good actually um, is the only consumer of it. So therefore you can make a business run that way. But when it comes to national defence, once it's provided, everybody shares in the benefits so how do you get people to pay for it? Well, the only way I know of is, is to make the government provide it and tax people for it. Um, because if, if, you, if, you, if one person um, um, may, I just heard an interesting news article about a Taiwanese um, billionaire who's giving money to sort of try and make people join the armed forces or to be ready to fight in case there's an invasion. Well. If, if our defence was organised that way, that a rich person just donated a lot of money and, and set up this force, they could never be repaid for that because a lot of people would say, well, this exists anyway, I'm not going to pay for it to get it. That's called the free rider problem. And um, there are some goods that are just subject to this free rider problem and it makes sense for the government to, to operate them. So lighthouses are another example. And not, not so important in this seafaring age, but in an age that's not as seafaring as, as in the past. But uh, lighthouses are another example of that. Yeah. Well, I, I am mindful just before we do move on, as I want to, to the GFC, that there are, there, there has been a partial, there has been a marketization, a partial marketization of defense because you have a lot of private contractors yeah. uh, now on a, when I went on a visit to Afghanistan back when I was an intelligence analyst, back when we were in Afghanistan, you know, I noticed that all of the close personal protection for the Australian embassy there was provided by a private company staffed mainly by ex-Australian uh, soldiers. And, of course, there's the this Wagner force fighting in Ukraine for Russia, which is not formally part of the Russian army that is a private contractor type outfit but again you would think that we're already possibly pushing up against the limits of um 
what could be used there. And of course, mercenaries have been employed. Mm. I use that mm. term loosely. I'm not sure exactly how it worked in the ancient world, but that was a big phenomenon in the ancient world. But I don't. But there were massive risks in relying on mercenaries, and I don't think mm. you could have a purely mercenary army uh, effectively. And I guess this is part of the the problem, isn't it? Because it's not. There's not obviously a consensus amongst all minds about where where the boundary is, where the natural or appropriate boundary is for the market and the government. And I guess that depends on competing conceptions of what public goods are or the best way to. Yeah, and when we use a word like defence, we're talking about a whole bundle of goods and services, and some of those indeed can be um, can be put out to tender and, and as you say, privatise up to a point, but. Um, yeah, there are some things, some aspects of defence, like the basic fighting force, that it's hard to see how you could, how you could actually um, make that work with markets. Okay, GFC, two very simple questions. I suspect mm. the answer is not, the answers are not as simple as the actual questions. Mm. I want to ask both together, but if you if you forget what the second one is, no problem. I'll remind you. The first one is. What actually caused what actually caused it? Like, where's the root of this problem? And the second one one is, does neoliberalism have anything to do with the root cause? Is does it deserve to be in the dock at all for the GFC, or is it partly responsible, or is it not responsible at all? Was it something totally unrelated to what we understand as neoliberalism? Yeah. Um, well, you know. Um so, so the basic cause of the GFC was a breakdown of um, trustworthiness in the financial sector. And, and so there were, um, um, and interestingly enough, going back to the, uh, the issues of um, privatisation, and we didn't talk about competition policy, but one of the ideas of competition policy is you, you look at an industry and you make it um, have as many participants as possible all competing with each other and putting pressure on each other. Um, now, the US banking system had gone through a period of, um, of dramatically increased competition. And um, as a result of that, banks were finding it quite difficult to make money. And that's, that's the... Um, that's, as it were, the, the, the way that competition works. Firms have to be constantly looking for new ways to make money, have to be innovative, responsive to consumers and so on. That's what being under competitive pressure means. Um, but unfortunately, banking um, as a profession, um, well, actually, I should, I should rephrase that. Banking really lost sight of its uh, calling as a profession. So a profession is a, um, uh, a um, relationship, uh, sorry, a profession is somebody who provides services recognising that they know a lot more than their client and they're in a position of power relative to their client and, that they, and if they act in a professional way, they ought to have a duty of care and um, they ought to have a, a, a degree of loyalty to their clients. Now, professions are particularly appropriate when there's a huge knowledge imbalance between the person providing the service and the person receiving the service. So if you go to the supermarket to buy apples, it doesn't need to be run in a particularly professional way because 
you can see the quality of apples, you can make good judgment about it. But if you're going and getting financial advice and somebody tells you that you can um, live in a home that you uh, buy as an investment property, which is what some people were told by Australian banks, and they go ahead and do that and find that it's illegal, um, that's, uh, that's disappointing. Um, so um, I think that a banking lost sight of its role as a profession. Now, is neoliberalism in the dock for that? Well, yes, it is partly because in neoliberalism, in the market, in the market metaphor, it is not an elaborate moral metaphor you go into markets with simple aims like just getting the best deal you can uh, if you're a consumer or, or just selling the stuff if you're a, if you're a producer. And um, you can do that with more or less moral scruples. And so um, a neoliberal mindset is one which tends to not focus on those moral scruples. So what happened was that banks, subject to increasing competition pressure, took on this idea that everything was just about profits and they started to explore, contrary to what should have been their professional instincts, they started to explore elaborate products that they could sell to people that had um, hidden time bombs in them. And the people buying these products had no idea um, that these time bombs were there and indeed most people in the economy had no idea that these time bombs were there. But they were there, and uh, I, I think that some people in these banks um, should have known, and some actually did know, that there, there were time bombs in them. And the time bombs, um, it, it, it's possible to make money in finance through various strategies, which um, I, I won't bore you with, but it's possible to make strategy make money with strategies that work very well most of the time but occasionally they blow up spectacularly. And these are called tail risks. The reason for that colourful name is if you imagine all the outcomes on a line and you imagine drawing a sort of bell-shaped distribution, you're talking about the extremely improbable things that happen out on the tails. So banks found ways to sell products to clients that had these time bombs in them or these tail risks. And, um, and and a lot of people didn't understand this even in banking. And so they started to sell these, they started this elaborate process of selling these products even to each other. And then they started to make new products, which were combinations of these other products, so that um, some of the documentation for these remarkable instruments, um, CDOs and CDO squared and things, were, were volumes of paper that no one could possibly understand. Um, anyway, um, it turns out that at the bottom of all of that, for all this stuff to work, there was an assumption that the, um, the aggregate house prices, house prices would generally go up together. And that usually happens. I've been, um, I've been forecasting for the last 30 years that um, you know, Sydney house prices eventually will crash. They're far too high and I'm always wrong. And uh, I haven't gone out and bought lots of real estate, so uh, I'm, I'm rather embarrassed about that forecast. It, it, but occasionally we've learned since the GFC it can happen that all the prices of houses in a large area will actually go down. And these um, time bombs 
were not thought to be very likely, and indeed before the fact they weren't very likely, but they actually did happen. So in about six states in the United States, there was an extraordinary decline in house prices. And uh, this, this sent waves through the financial system. And then because all these um, very complicated products had been put together, people didn't even know what the implication was of house prices collapsing for the price of these products. And there was panic selling and, uh, and all sorts of stuff. And so the whole financial system came under enormous stress and was in danger of collapsing. Uh, and in the end, um, the government had to bail out a large portion of the financial sector. So the, ta the taxpayers paid for it. Yeah. So how much is neoliberalism to blame for that? Well, it's very interesting that this issue is very interesting because many people say, and I totally agree with this, that economic principles should not apply to things far away from commercial concerns, like, say, families. You shouldn't run a family as a business, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so many people recognise that. But and I can't stress this enough. The GFC was a case of markets and commercial relationships and economics not working right at the centre of capitalism in the banking sector. So this was not a case of misapplied economics, taking economics far away from where it ought to apply. This was a case of economics not working right at the centre of capitalism where it ought to work. So would you say that it was a market failure in the conventional sense that that, that term is used? And I wonder if market failure... Does that imply that certain decisions and practices could have either been avoided or applied that may have um, not led us down that path? I think um, Professor Michael Jensen um, put this very well. He was an academic in the 1980s and he, um, he um, was actually responsible for helping, he, he laid the intellectual groundwork for introducing incentive contracts and super bonuses um, for, for very highly paid people in the finance sector and so on. He, he laid the um, foundation for a neoliberal revolution in finance in the 1980s. But looking back on it all, he said words to the effect of when people go to business schools, we teach them how to apply cost-benefit analyses in all situations. And that's usually a good thing. You know, cost-benefit analysis just means weighing up the pros and cons of things. But he said, when it comes to integrity, using a cost-benefit analysis virtually guarantees you won't be a person of integrity. So when it comes to keeping promises or telling the truth, if someone has integrity, what it means at its bottom is that they will continue to act properly or they will tell you the truth even if it fails a cost-benefit analysis. That's what it means to have integrity, to act against your interests on occasions if your integrity demands it. And so by training uh, not just financial pro professionals but by training a whole generation of super managers that the only way to make decisions in life is to do a cost-benefit analysis means that if you're faced with a moral um, dilemma, 
you may well just either lie if, if the benefits exceed the cost, or you may tell, quote unquote, the optimal amount of truth. <laughs> you may tell the enough truth that um, uh, satisfies certain criteria, but isn't the whole truth. And this is important. This is important in any professional environment, um, because as I said earlier, a professional environment is usually valued by society in situations where someone has an enormous knowledge or skill advantage over someone else. You don't go to your doctor and expect them to find an optimal treatment where optimal means what will make the most money for the practice. Mm. You go to them trusting that they will work in your interests to devise a menu of um, treatments. You may have some choice in that, but, but it will all be um, under the umbrella of their expertise and knowledge. You don't go to a doctor and expect them um, to, um, to, to ring up their broker and be selling your kidneys before you die if you're on death's bed. You don't expect them to do that kind of thing. And yet that's how the financial sector began to operate prior to the GFC. That's really, really fascinating. The response to the GFC, the policy response, the reforms or the actions taken to try and address both the, the underlying structural issues but also just the immediate turmoil that was generated in the global economy. I'm really curious, did they go to the neoliberal playbook and apply neoliberal principles to try and address the the, the issues or were they forced actually to look outside of the neoliberal playbook in order to address the GFC? Wow, that's a big question. Um, probably because of my central bank background and the, the concerns that central banks have just to not let the financial system collapse, um, I suspect that for the most part they're on the run just trying to stop catastrophe um, um, was it a neoliberal playbook well in a sense no because actually um, neoliberals think you should leave the market to do everything and leave government out of everything so in a sense no it wasn't a neoliberal playbook at all it was uh, it was uh, the government coming to the rescue of um, of uh, the whole system being about to collapse and there's irony in that because, you know, people were allowed to act as freely as they wanted to and uh, break a few moral norms and uh, break a few people's pension funds and their life savings and so on. And then when it all ended up being bad for them, the government came and rescued them. So, so there is some irony in that. Um, so it wasn't a neoliberal playbook. It was a highly interventionist playbook. Uh, what I don't know as much about, um, but I'll just make a comment on it is, it is surprising, disturbing that there were very few successful criminal charges against um, people in the banking sector following the global financial crisis. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, it's hard to know how that is. I think the immense complexity of um, these financial products um, it's, it's not easy to win a case against a big bank on something like this because of the complexity of the issues and because the banks are going to get really uh, top-class lawyers 
Um, it's not always easy to prosecute banks. Um, so yes, how, the question behind the question, has, has there been effective reform since then? Well, um, like a lot of things in life, it's about half as much as what you want. Um, I guess uh, there's more sensitivity to, to, um, to the kinds of factors that could have led to the global financial crisis, more sensitivity to them. There's more talk about um, ethics in banking um, and, and attempts to bring about culture change. I guess we'll find out yeah. sooner or later, won't we? And we, we're heading into a, uh, another period where there's a lot of scary talk about the global economy. But I would actually like to move to the question of poverty, mm. which is, I realise is a bit of a pivot, but, you know, running through the thread of this conversation, there is, and going right back to the the intention of neoliberal reforms, which is to, I guess, create economic efficiency with a view to creating greater wealth and I guess the theory runs that that will permeate the economy. And here we're talking about real people, jobs, greater income, goods, whatever. But of course, poverty is a feature of capitalism. I say feature as in, obviously, I know there's a lot of debate amongst economists, but wherever you see capitalism, there is poverty. And of course, there's probably poverty in any economic system. We all famously know you know, the the clever lines about communism and planned economies and how they basically make everyone poor and all that kind of stuff. But I particularly want to address the connection such that one exists between poverty and neoliberalism. So if we accept, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the intention of neoliberalism, the kind of theory behind it, is that this is going to generate greater prosperity for more people, but it hasn't eliminated poverty. There's still homeless. You know, if you fast forward four decades from the 1980s, not only is there still a problem of homelessness that, that looks to have grown, people talk about wealth inequality as one of the consequences of uh, neoliberal economic reform. So the wealthiest whatever percent have, a, have a, a, an obscene level of wealth that just seems inconceivable, you know, more wealth than the entire GDP of small countries. I remember reading a lot, not so much recently, this may have been going back to the 1990s about the, the shrinking middle class or the the depreciating middle class. Obviously, I'm not the expert. I'm just trying to foreground why I introduced poverty into the conversation. I'm not sure where to where to take it, but is there some connection between poverty and neoliberalism. Does neoliberalism work for the majority, but does it produce losers? Does it directly create inequality, a greater gap between the, the top wealthiest and what consequences does that have? Um, well, I think um, the, first, the first point to be clear on is that neoliberalism doesn't necessarily promise to reduce poverty Maybe the political expressions of it talk about that, um, and they do sometimes. But um, there's nothing in the market per se that promises to reduce poverty. Um, all that it does, as you rightly said, is to 
um, efficiently allocate production and consumption around society so that basically it gets rid of any gluts or shortages. If there's a shortage in society, there'll be a price rise which will discourage consumers and encourage producers towards that good. If there's a um, if there's a glut, there'll be a price fall, which will discourage producers and encourage consumers to get rid of that glut. So that's the kind of thing that it does. It's like functioning toilets. It's a necessary part of society and it's great. Um, will it solve all the problems of the world? Will it solve poverty? Well, not necessarily um, because markets reward those who are marketable. Um, and when, when we come to talking about wages and, and where the worker becomes, as it were, the good that's being bought and sold, um, the, the prices in those markets may be efficient, but they may be very low. Um, if someone's not a very skilled worker, a market system will deliver them a low wage. So there's no necessary um, way, there's no uh, presumption that um, a, market, a society that's heavily market-oriented will get rid of poverty. Now, having said that, um, if society is functioning well economically and um, there is, as it were, a lot of wealth to go around, it is perhaps easier to, um, to tax people and to try and do social programs. And that, that was the vision of the whole Keating government, I think, um, to make the economy more productive so that it could be a more socially concerned environment. And to some extent, I think, I think there is some truth in that. But it's not automatic. It requires government intervention. And so the idea that a completely laissez-faire system, laissez-faire just means no, no restrictions at all on markets, the idea that a completely laissez-faire system would, um, would get rid of poverty, I think, is wrong. So in Australia's case, Australia's an interesting case because in terms of actual wages, we are quite an unequal society in the OECD. But there's a lot of taxes and transfers, uh, financial transfers and in-kind transfers, which make Australia a rather equal place in the OECD. So um, Australia is a case in point where the neoliberal market system delivers a lot of inequality in wages, um, but then it stops being neoliberal because the government steps in and um, with taxes, um, transfers, so things like welfare payments and in-kind transfers, so public health and public education tends to be used more by people on lower incomes. And so that, that's an in-kind transfer. Um, so, um, so without government intervention, then I think there's no presumption that neoliberalism will get rid of poverty in my mind. Economists say this formally in the following way. They said that there are two desirable social goals, which are efficiency and equity. Equity is about how equally things are distributed. Efficiency is about how well markets are working, whether gluts and shortages are, are being dealt with. And there's no, you can have an efficient society with a very unequal or inequitable uh, distribution of goods and services or distribution of wealth. That's possible. That's perfectly possible. Or you can have... Um, you can have a very equal society, which is very inefficient. So you mentioned communist societies before. They were generally very inefficient, um, but poverty rates were lower. 
So when the Iron Curtain fell, um, Eastern Europe uh, suffered enormous economic decline. It was run along market principles, but poverty rates increased. It's a bit hard to tell there how much was just the economic decline and, and a shock of adjustment, but poverty did go up. And a place like Cuba, which is a remarkable place, is very poor, um, but it has very um, high levels of health and education. <laughs> um, so, um, so there you go. Um, so in my own opinion, um, I'm a pragmatist on this. I think, um, um, I think that um, letting running, organising the economy so that it runs reasonably well so that you do have a tax base is a good thing and then using that tax base to intervene to make it a more equal society is, is sort of where I would um, position myself on this issue. Poverty. I, I wonder this. I, I, I've often asked myself this question and I would love to hear your perspective. Is, and, and I want you to approach this as an economist mm. first and if you then want to bring in sort of morality that's fine but because it because it feels like a technical question although if it's if if i am approaching this in the wrong way you can disabuse me but is poverty a bit like death that is it's a bad but permanent and unavoidable irresolvable feature of human existence like is there actually an economic model system way that could actually eliminate poverty as it's understood or is that just one of those unfortunate parts of a fallen world speaking as a christian that we have to live with mitigate manage yeah because it's different to death because it's not universal but um i i hear your question um yes it's hard to imagine because because people's circumstances not least their economic circumstances, but all their circumstances are a combination of choices and the choices that are made available to them, um, as it were, a combination of um, of freedom and uh, and the environment. The, the terms in which we're offered freedom in life differ remarkably, but we are all offered a certain amount of freedom. So it's hard to imagine... Um, getting rid of tragedy in life, uh, sharing your, share your Christian worldview, and it's, it seems to be part of the fall that people will make terrible choices. And um, in any kind of functioning human community, um, people that are close enough to love you are close enough to harm you, and we all have freedom to make bad choices. And so it seems a big ask to get rid of tragedy altogether from society, including economic tragedy like poverty. Um, so I, I guess I find the idea of the complete elimination of it um, hard to see how that would happen. But you could certainly do a lot better than we do. Um, so there's kind of preventative and, um, and responsive issues you could talk about. So responsive issues are dealing with people who are already poor and have very little capacity to change either their earning situation or their or their life generally, and this is this is the um, 
the area of welfare services, providing cheap accommodation for people and so on. Um, and there's always more that you can do about that. You know, you can always, you could always tax a bit more and provide more social housing. There's a real shortage of social housing in Australia. Um, so um, um, there's always more you can do. And on the preventative side, um, this, is, this is a matter of um, producing well-balanced individuals who can take responsibility for their lives in economic and other ways. And, you know, there's, there's many other people than economists that you could talk to about that uh, and, the, and the kinds of things that one can do about that. Um, I know that from friends um, and a little bit my own experience, I had a strange um, experience of growing up. My father was mentally ill, so we were actually quite poor because he was so disorganised in his life, but we had middle-class values. So, it was, so although we were quite poor, I knew that um, I had this sense that education was valuable, and indeed education is very valuable. It, it helps you get out of poverty. Um, and um, so, but I, I know from other people who were both poor and had what you might call a poor mindset that they had this kind of hopelessness and sense of lack of agency so that they just couldn't imagine um, being in a different world and they couldn't imagine how something like education would help them. And so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the main... Well, one thing I could say as an economist is just to emphasise the importance of education. There was a time a few hundred years ago when the most important item of capital, capital is a means to production, was land. You know, if you had land, you, you had the main, the, the main resource that was necessary to produce the most important thing, which is food, to survive. Um, whereas now in the modern economy, I think that... Um, so-called human capital, which is skills and, um, and good training and ability to think and everything is relatively much more important than, than that form, other forms of capital. Having other forms of capital like, um, you know, rich parents who own houses who can give you loans and so on, they're still very important and that's still a big source of inequality, um, that some people have those things and some people don't. Um, but if you're talking about an individual and... Um, well, I suppose what encouragement could I give to an individual if, if they're able to is to be well-educated because human capital is a much more important item in today's society than it would have been a few hundred years ago before the Industrial Revolution. I'd like to turn to one final question, Gordon, before we mm-hmm. sign off, and that is libertarianism, which I realise is to move to another concept, but there is a relationship between neoliberalism and libertarianism they seem to be on a, a a spectrum together one way and i've 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 long been fascinated by libertarianism and uh, actually have read more in libertarian philosophy and thought than neoliberalism but i guess a, a really simple way of mapping the relationship is to just say libertarianism is an extreme form of neoliberalism so the the neoliberal reforms of the 80s for example i think were applauded by libertarianism but they were only a small step on a long path to the libertarian utopia which is an uber small government and, and there is a bit of a spectrum within libertarianism i know so i'm i want to i want to go to the the most extreme form and that that 
it'll make sense why I go there and how it all ties into this conversation. So the, the sort of most minimalist libertarian universe has a tinsy-wincy government that provides some collective defence, um, a, a sort of uh, light-touch police force that can deal with serious crimes, crime really being defined as physical harm, things like murder and rape, which violate the individual, you know, the property ownership of your body, some mechanism for enforcing contracts and a, a couple of other uh, minor things in the market. But then pretty much all other institutions, should they exist uh, up to the will of individuals and their ability to cooperate and st- sort of underpinning this view is the idea that that government intervention produces poorer outcomes than leaving things to the free market. And you mentioned before how there was a debate within neoliberalism, you know, should you have a, an adoptive market or whatever. So the, the, the kind of libertarian I'm talking about wants to really leave, I would say, 95% of matters to the market. Now, the reason I describe this as a utopia is I can't think of a single example in history, human history where this model has actually been tested. And it ties into the neoliberalism because we've been talking about market liberalization, the use of the market, the extension of the market. But I, I wonder if you'd be willing to think through theoretically a potential libertarian nirvana. And I, I wonder as an economist, what you think would actually happen in that in that system. Because it seems to me to make all kinds of assumptions about humans, which are utterly belied by the global financial crisis, for example. So, you, you know, that I was struck when you were talking about the, the failure of professionalism in banking. And it seemed to me that they were exercising a certain freedom they had in the market, which was to basically lie to customers and rip them off. There was no government regulation or if there was a regulation it wasn't enforced in such a way or there weren't certain uh, incentives or threats of punishment that seemed to alter or curb or constrain that uh, behavior and I'm I'm saying to prejudice your answer because I'm injecting my own antipathy towards libertarianism because I, I think it utterly fails on moral grounds and uh, seriously misjudges the nature of the human being and again I'm coming from a Christian perspective that thinks every every person is is in some sense a sinner and capable of evil but again economically let's uh, i guess what i what I've, I've always wanted to talk to an economist about this who's not a libertarian <laughs> so can kind of provide a a a more neutral perspective so let's say that we let's say australia tomorrow goes to a system where there is a defense force and there's some contract enforcers, there's some policing of serious crimes, but basically humans, individuals are left to their own devices outside of that. What, what happens economically? How do people respond to that system? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, Jonathan. I, I mean, the thing that can be said in favour of um, the system that you've outlined is a high regard for human freedom and agency and um, sharing your Christian worldview. I think that is a, a great gift of God. Those things are a great gift of God, but also sharing your um, Christian perspective. I think that it's uh, 
naive about a range of other things that are really important. Um, what would happen if a society was run along those lines? Well, I think what would happen is markets would be used extensively because one of the attractions of a neoliberal society is that markets are used to solve the problem of values and to solve the problem of ethics. So as you know, there, there's um, very interesting disagreements with people about what values should hold in various situations and how ethics should go. And markets give a, give a rough and ready answer to that, which kind of works mechanically. So values are taken to be market values and uh, ethics are generally consequentialist ethics. That's to say, um, you know, you, you ask if something's good by just looking at the consequences, of the pros, minuses, the cons. Um, so, so that is a, a solution to, to how to run society, um, is to just use market values for values and to just have a sort of do a cost-benefit analysis for everything. Um, but what you will find in such a world is, first of all, as we just spoke a moment ago, there's no um, um, guarantee that some people will not be wretchedly poor. Um, there's no guarantee that you could really trust people if people are doing completely taken up with um, uh, a market mentality of just doing, oops, sorry, consequentialist ethics, just doing a cost-benefit analysis for everything, then they'll do it on whether they'll um, tell you the truth or treat you well as well. Um, and the market values, well, there's a market value, uh, sorry to be uh, grievously distasteful, but there's a market value for child prostitution, there's a market value for um, LSD, there are market values for all sorts of things that um, uh, we might say are out of line with, with human flourishing. Now, I realise that a libertarian would, would object to child prostitution because it would be um, harming somebody else's body and they would respect that. So they would uh, presumably try and shut that market down, not want it to be free. But I don't see why they wouldn't have a free market for LSD um, providing you shut yourself in your room and you don't you don't um, uh, interact with anybody else, or even just for prostitution. Yeah, just straight prostitution. If it's, right. if it's consensual, because the libertarian, it seems to me, doesn't really believe in a public morality because it's a matter of individual choice, providing you're not physically harming someone. And so it seems like that they they do not take account of what you might call moral externalities. So the idea that you have a free market in prostitution, in here it would be really unregulated, so you could get some mega corporations that you know, manage 80% of the prostitutes and provide a, a sort of high-end service. I mean, what about the impact and, on and marriages, for example? through the courts to provide the service properly if they yeah. breach contract and all that sort of stuff. But it, it seems disinterested or, or even blind or can't accept the fact that that might have an impact on marriages, for example, and then if it has, have if it if it um, leads to greater infidelity in marriage, that has a flow-on effect to children if marriages break down, for example. Well, there's no obvious reason why libertarians should support marriage because it's a monopoly, and usually monopolies are ripe for deregulation. <laughs> um, so. 
let me tell you a story. I think I think this really gets down to what we think about freedom and what we think about evil. So um, I tell you a story which I which I say in my book. Um, years ago, when I was a graduate student at Oxford Oxford uh, University, I went to the Oxford Union and listened to the debates, and I was struck by how superficial they were. They were very clever, but they're very superficial. They'd sometimes even hang an argument on a bill that was passed a few years ago rather than arguing things from first principles. So I went to one of the leaders and I said, look, I'm finding these debates a bit boring and superficial. And he agreed with me and he said, Gordon, you have to understand that everybody who comes here believes uncritically in three things, democracy, free market liberalism and sexual freedom. And I... Um, I sort of thought about that a lot, and that's where I got the title of my book from, Western Fundamentalism. I thought this is a kind of fundamentalism where people uncritically espouse democracy, free market liberalism and sexual freedom. And what do they all have in common? They all have in common a certain conception of freedom, which is that the individual needs to be free um, in, in democracy from dictators, in free market liberalism from restrictions to trade and in sexual freedom to choose any, consent, any consenting adult sexual partner regardless of any pre-existing arrangements or promises or anything. And so um, they all have in common a certain conception of freedom. Now, in the case of the sexual revolution, which is rightly understood as being partly driven by left-wing concerns for social justice, but I think predominantly it's really a right-wing deregulation of sexual relationships. It's really neoliberalism flooding into an area where it did not belong. In, in, um, neo, in the sexual revolution and in free market liberalism, it's very much the law of the jungle, the, the strong and beautiful, um, the ones who are marketable win and the others lose. And this, this reminds me actually of um, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who, who thought that the powerful and beautiful and dexterous had a moral duty to marginalise the weak, whom he endearingly called the slaves and mob, the mob and so on. And um, I think that uh, this conception of individual freedom does not have to go well. And so what I criticise libertarians for and indeed Western fundamentalists for is they're just naive about human evil. So Western society has a strong freedom from ethic, which is very sensitive to circumstances or prejudices which might limit your scope of action and agency, very sensitive to that and wanting to break those away and largely uphold that. But it has no freedom for ethic. It has no idea of what a flourishing human life looks like, except that you have to be free to do whatever you want and create out of yourself whatever you want to create. Now, not all worldviews are like that. So in Christianity, the biggest source of unfreedom is sin. And Jesus said, if if the sun makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So freedom from is, is about God freeing you progressively from sin, from the, the penalty of it and, and the power of it. And the freedom for bit is, 
is the adoption into God's family, which is a picture of human flourishing. So there's both freedom from and freedom for in, in Christianity, and it takes evil seriously. But Western fundamentalists and libertarians do not take evil seriously. They haven't what I consider to be a naive idea. It's naive because it's built on a view of human nature, which is just wrong. And this is why these societies have never existed or functioned in history, in the testimony of history, uh, because they just have a naive view of human of human. Uh, beings, they don't take evil seriously enough. And so that's what's wrong at core, in my opinion, with libertarianism. That's what's wrong with a good chunk of neoliberalism. It doesn't take evil seriously. Um, I can tell you what will happen in a society which is run completely by markets and completely without government. Some strong man or strong person, but it'll probably be a man actually, um, will take over or, or some group of people, oligarchs, will, will manipulate the system and, and they will gain all sorts of power and control, even if it has the appearance of freedom. Um, nature abhors a vacuum and um, uh, society needs to take evil seriously. I couldn't agree more, Gordon, and I would only add that the, the other thing it doesn't take seriously is actually power and authority. It doesn't realize that that comes naturally to humans. Maybe it starts with parenthood. But there is this thing called authority. Some humans are able to gain it and exercise it over others. And so I, I think this libertarian nirvana can only lead to slavery of one form or another because certain human beings actually have the freedom to ex to acquire and exercise power over others in their own interests. And, and uh, why wouldn't some of them do it? Gordon, I know you have to run and it's been an absolutely fascinating and for me in many ways enlightening conversation and I just want to thank you for sharing your insights, your wisdom, your technical knowledge. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much.